And what became very clear, especially in the halls of the United Nations and international diplomacy, is that the quality of the advice is not determined by the size of the giver. It was the alliance of small island states, meiosis we call it, a group of 40-something small islands that got together and went to the United Nations Environmental and Development Conference in Rio, de Janeiro, that was called the Earth Summit. And there, they pushed for the inclusion of climate change into the agenda against tremendous resistance from third world countries and obviously from the larger countries as well. But by 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 using the, the, the weight in numbers, they got it onto the international agenda. And it, climate change has since Rio remained on the international agenda, as we all know. It was clear that tourism was the largest voluntary transfer of resources from the rich to the poor in history. Of course, seasteading is uh, is a tremendous potential for uh, for small island states because of the fact that, again, uh, they're using the ocean to continue their existence, then people can remain there. And uh, also, it's, it can be a source of easing uh, pressures, population pressures on busier and the more crowded coastal areas in different parts of the world. I'm working with the bad boys. The thing is that the extractive industries uh, in my book uh, are pretty bad because no one tells me how to be good. I mean, the oil companies and companies associated with them, statistics show that their uh, their drive for, uh, um, for, for responsibility is responsible for the vast majority of carbon savings in the world, around the world. Welcome to the Blue Economy Primer, a New Orleans-based podcast where you learn from the experts, the practical tools and solution sets that will empower your community to adapt and thrive in a new blue era of rising seas and economic discontinuity. Today, we are speaking with a preeminent thought leader, diplomat, and pioneer in the international realm of sustainable development policy, island state climate resilience, renewable energy independence, and cultural preservation. In the 1990s, he was a key organizer of the development continuum, which ultimately defined the global agenda we now call the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Originally from Samoa, he's a highly respected point of reference for government and industry leaders across the broad reach of Pacific, Polynesian, and Caribbean communities. His keen understanding of how to reconcile sustainable tourism and energy independence with the powerful forces of globalization make him an invaluable resource for at-risk island and coastal communities seeking to effectively navigate existential threats to not only their cultural heritage, economy, and way of life, but also the accelerating loss of the very land on which they live. Lalay, it's such an honor. Thank you so much for joining us on the Blue Economy Primer. Can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Hi, Greg. It's a pleasure to be on this uh, program. And congratula- congratulations to all of you on the great work that you're doing, highlighting the major issues in conservation of your region and, of course, the country and the planet. Um, you know, your your introduction was um, was was uh, was pretty uh, uh, comprehensive, so there's not much I can add to that, except for the fact that, you know, um, um, I'm a development entrepreneur, and my CV looks like a dog's breakfast, so that's why there are so many things in so many different places, but I'm always looking at being involved in projects and initiatives which can um, further sustainable development on the planet. 
Your bio and additional information and links will be available on the webpage that we'll have for this podcast. And I highly encourage everybody to look at your background. It really, it, it really looks like uh, an introduction for a Nobel uh, winner or something. The, the, work, the work you've done and the background you have is just tremendous in terms of the global reach and the importance of the work that you've done. That's very kind of you to say so, but um, I just try to fill in wherever I can. Great. Well, could you tell us a bit about your background and maybe your early career and how, do you, how you became such a ubiquitous point of reference at the intersection of global policy related to sustainable island communities? Well, I'm from a small island called Samoa, and I remember as a kid that I got my injections to save my life and to increase my health from the World Health Organization. Then my um, schooling was helped because of the UN Environmental, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO. And then, you know, my the independence of my country, uh, which was... Uh, which took a lot of lives of relatives and ancestors of mine. The independence of my country was made possible through the trusteeship council of the United Nations system. So essentially after all the bloodshed, it was some pretty um, uh, agile diplomacy which got my country independent. So hence I became very interested in uh, international assistance for small islands and small people like me who had no other resort to power or influence. Hence, my ending up in the international sphere. So I'm not even sure where to begin. There's so much I want to ask you about your views about what the future holds for low-lying coastal and island communities. But how about if we start with what what is your best case scenario or positive future scenario of how these communities could possibly navigate the impacts of climate change and associated land loss? Well, I'm from the Pacific Ocean, the largest... um, part of the globe. So oceans are very important to me. And when people talk about land loss, I tend to think more about ocean gain in the sense that ocean is reclaiming land as opposed to the other way around. So it's not quite as sort of uh, existential threat in my mind as it may be to others. And the thing is that as Polynesians, we uh, settled and navigate. We're known as uh, probably the world's greatest navigators. And we settled over uh, a third of the world's um, um, area and settling throughout the uh, the Pacific Ocean. So we're accustomed to migration. So the idea of hanging on to land because of whatever reason is um, not quite as important as it may be for people from large land areas. So I think that migration properly done to other larger islands or even to continental uh, bodies is the way to help the um, the movement of the oceans onto land. This is already being done. Small islands like Tuvalu and uh, Kiribati in the Pacific have bought land in Fiji, for example, and they're looking at buying land on Australia and even New Zealand, so to transport their migrations across there. You know, you know you've seen the, mo- the movie Moana, right? <laughs> and uh, Maui, the hero, he pulls land out of the ocean. So essentially, it's this sort of mentality that, you know, if we can't find it where we are, go elsewhere and find it there and set up there. So I think that's the, that's the way it would probably go, sort of migration to, uh, to other land masses in a sensible and predictable way to ensure that the oceans gain or re- regain uh, the, the land and uh, the people are able to live 
on other larger tracts of land. Could you talk a little bit about your your early career and from that you know early Samoan experience and and how you became such an important figure in in the lives and policies and in development sort of the modern development of of uh, Polynesian nations and Caribbean communities? It was from the this early realization that um, much of our fate lay in the hands of uh, people thousands of miles away that uh, that led me to a career which um, took me to other lands, essentially for education and for education through to um, uh, for jobs, your jobs uh, largely in communications, broadcasting and journalism, uh, so that I could look further into what made these larger powers work and to see how we could uh, use them for for our own benefit. And from there, looking again at these large, slightly larger countries like New Zealand, um, I looked at uh, the, the wider stage and what became very clear, especially in the halls of the United Nations and international diplomacy, is that the quality of the advice is not determined by the size of the giver. So we've uh, I noticed that there are an enormous number of very, very important um, uh, movements in history which were came from uh, recommendations from small countries, countries like Malta, a small country in the Mediterranean. They were one of the larger movers in the entire um, United Nations system looking at more at a more uh, uh, at a more productive way of dealing with oceans and dealing with each other on oceans so that they stopped fighting as much over 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 marine um, body bodies and things so it was from there that I started to look and realize that you know the larger the body sometimes uh, the more opportunities there are in the gaps within the body itself that you could get things done you could move them by, 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 it's sort of like oiling a big machine. If you knew where to put the oil, you knew you, you knew you could move or retard the movement of a very large machine. So with this, this is where my um, um, my career took me because then I would work in organisations, largely nonprofits, which looked at um, parts of the world which uh, desperately, almost desperately, needed assistance from outside, but did not quite know how to access it. So this is where I, um, my career took me to the non-governmental humanitarian and development area, where one of the key things that we did was something we learned in the South Pacific. We learned that before you give anybody anything, ask them directly what they need and they will tell you. This is the only way to do it because if you go around the developing world, you will see hundreds if not thousands of wells which are unused because people have come in and dug wells in areas which the locals did not want them to, to dig a well for various reasons. Either they could have been holy ground or you know or taboo areas, but this sort of stuff it sort of saves um, it saves a lot of, uh, of of resources of the donor, and it saves an awful lot of anguish and angst for the recipient. So, you know, aid and development aid is a two way thing, and you need both parties to agree on the best direction to move. And so that's why I moved in that area. And then from the non-governmental area to um, the United Nations. And then, of course, in the United Nations, a lot of things could be done. And there's a lot of work that could be done for to help smaller countries decolonize. I mean, some of the people that I snuck into the United Nations um, many, many years ago were regarded as terrorists by other countries, larger countries. But they turned out to be... Uh, 
uh, leaders of their own independent nations uh, uh, after they took their countries to independence. So there again, these large bodies, while they may be controlled by a small number of very powerful countries, can be used to for the benefit of smaller, largely um, helpless countries at, at some stage. And of course, they add, once they're independent, they become very valuable members of a global community, which requires consensus at many different levels to get things done. And of course, consensus is terribly important in the most in, in the most important part of uh, what we as humans have to do. That is the existential problem of um, retaining human life on Earth by controlling climate change. And this, again, was helped because of small island countries. It was the alliance of small island states, as we call it, a group of 40-something small islands that got together and went to the United Nations Environmental and Development Conference in Rio, de Janeiro, that was called the Earth Summit. And there, they pushed for the inclusion of climate change into the agenda against tremendous resistance from third world countries and obviously from the larger countries as well. But by 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 using the, the, the weight in numbers, they got it onto the international agenda. And it, climate change has since Rio remained on the international agenda, as we all know. And now it's being... Um, listed and recognized as the leading existential threat to humanity. So again, this was done by small island states. And back to my point again, that the quality of the advice is not determined by the size of the, by the size of the advice of the advice given. I'll repeat that. The quality of advice is not determined by the size of the advice giver. Mm-hmm. Well, from my own work with island and coastal communities, I have very mixed attitudes about the tourism industry as both a key economic driver and a destroyer of cultural heritage. The, the Italians summarize this idea with the phrase turismo terrorismo when describing the devastating impacts of unchecked tourism that has taken place in places like Venice. So do you have a good example of this approach that you're talking about that has worked out particularly well for uh, island or coastal community? When I went back to Samoa for a university vacation, I helped out in uh, a research program which looked at uh, local people and tourism. And one of the things which uh, one of the elders told me, and this was a consistent message that came through, is that they love tourism because it, uh, they met, met these people from faraway lands and heard about them. It was very interesting about their lives and, um, and how they got there. But there was a problem. I said, so what's the problem? They said, well, we can't afford much more tourism. And I said, why? And then they explained that, you know, as part of their culture, um, they had to give the very best of what they had to visitors that came to their villages. So this is what's happening. And as <laughs> tourists were coming in, and they were getting the very best of the locals and enjoying it, but they didn't realize that the locals had very little else after they'd given them their best. So this um, pointed out to me the power and the the impact that um, negative and otherwise that tourism could have. But then looking more closely at it, it was clear that tourism was the largest voluntary transfer of resources from the rich to the poor in history. And I mean voluntary. It's the largest voluntary transfer of resources from the haves the have-nots in history. So it has an enormous amount of power. 
um, tourism money, especially if it's uh, worked properly in, in small in small destinations, goes more to the local population rather than um, uh, development aid, which goes through um, the government's um, coffers, and of course, take gets gets pushed into more um, more pressing problems that the government sees, and and little of it goes back goes to the communities in themselves. Now there is, of course, um, as you say, uh, the phrase turismo terrorismo, which the Italians have dubbed uh, the the over tourism of places like Venice. Well, this is a clear example of non sustainable tourism, because what's happened is that they've just allowed um, an unchecked flow of tourists into their very uh, fragile environment, and it's destroying it. And the thing is, again, they were after the money and forgetting about the fact that the people were drawn to Venice because of the beauty of uh, of the mixture of the way um, ancient um, structures um, existed in this wonderful, beautiful lagoon. And so over-tourism is slowly destroying what people can see so they won't come and see it again. Um, they're doing things about it now. So, so that was based on greed and non-sustainability. For example, if you go next door to France, they dealt with it you know, completely differently. The French saw that over 40 million people were invading Paris, uh, their prized tourism uh, product. And so they thought, let's try to redirect how these people um, transfer into our country. So what they did was they knew that tourists, all tourists were attracted by Paris and by French wines. So what did they do? They built wine routes. So they siphoned off millions of tourists into the countryside to taste the wine and get them out of the city mainly. So that also helped um, um, these wine producers in rural areas. And of course, the next thing that was done, the Italians themselves did a very good job of agro-tourism, where tourists were then reduced to, um, to farms and uh, farm stays. And again, it, um, it, it boosted the agricultural uh, uh, communities and um, and gave tourists uh, tourists another way of looking at the country. For example, in Central America, I was working with the uh, coffee producers of um, of Guatemala, and one of the things we said was said, "Look, you know, just build a little store where people can buy coffee, they can buy knickknacks to take home with them um, when they come to visit your finca, you know, your uh, coffee farm." And they did this, and eventually what's happened now is that most coffee growers in Guatemala, for example, and this is uh, indicative of many parts of, uh, of uh, coffee-growing countries, most of them are making more money out of tourists than they are out of coffee. So this is the way you use something which can threaten you in a productive way. And um, it is also, I think for me, it's the only peace dividend because when people stop shooting at each other across borders, um, the money saved doesn't go towards school or health or whatever. The money saved for weapons goes again into the treasury and other things. But what happens in most former combatant uh, uh, territories is that the people stream across borders to look at each other, to see how they are, what they're doing, and they've heard, they've heard so much about them. And um, so therefore they're bringing their cash in both directions again it's a, that's that's the real peace dividend, and once you meet people that uh, you were told were demons, um, and you see them, you taste their food, and you shake their hands, you're much 
less likely to bomb them in future. So there's that. So I think the huge the, uh, the tool for me is a, is one of the largest and most powerful anti-poverty tools that we have been given. And that's why I like working with them because it's the way that we can get resources to resource poor pockets of the world. And it's a wonderful way to get people to meet other people in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that certainly hits home thinking about after Katrina here. Uh, the, I came to the first Jazz Fest right after Katrina, and uh, certainly tourism and the expansion of tourism since Katrina has been a key economic driver in New Orleans. On the question of culture, for example, I mean, what other industry is there that people complain that they cannot spend enough of their money? When tourists go to, go to a destination, their biggest complaint is there wasn't enough to buy, there weren't enough knickknacks and, and, and um, souvenirs for them to buy. They basically come into a place and they say, hey, I'm here, where can I spend my money? And another thing is that, you know, in terms of cultural um, effect, what happens is that, you know, the tourists will go to a hotel and they hear the local band and they hear, see a couple of dancers and hear a couple of vocal songs and they like it and they say, well, we, you know, we're staying here for a couple more days. Can we hear more songs, more chants? hear more about your culture. And then, you know, these young people that are entertaining the tourists, they suddenly realize, oh my gosh, we should have listened to our grandparents when they were singing those chants, which we don't remember anymore. So they go back to their grandparents and they say, teach us those dances, those chants and those stories. The tourists want to hear it. And so what happens then is that uh, uh, tourism is reviving the cultures of, of, of these small countries and destinations. And then what happens is that people have fest- cultural festivals. And then again, here again, countries where the, you know, uh, if it, which it may may have been colonized, the first thing that colonizers do is try to dampen or wipe out the local culture. So now you have festivities, festivals, which which um, which glorify and celebrate the the cultural um, heritage of, of, of different um, locations. So there again, that helps uh, the cultural. Um, um, uh, status of a country. And also, the money goes to education. So kids get educated. They, um, the schools are better. And then the schools are better and um, the medical facilities are better because you have to have good medical facilities to treat tourists. That's the first priority. And then and the added benefit is that then the locals benefit from that as well. It's great to hear a positive spin on tourism. So switching to blue economy, what does the blue economy and blue technology development mean to you, and how does it relate to sustainable economic development for resilient island communities? The isolation of many small island developing states is the biggest um, a deterrent to investment there. So they then have to rely on primary products like, you know, bananas, coconuts, cacao, and things which are then transported thousands of miles away and then takes ages to be um, to reimbursed for them. And it also takes up a lot of very valuable land because islands, islanders know full, full well that their islands um, are small and they can't keep uh, growing bananas everywhere because they need it for other things. Anyway, so I think that with uh, technology, blue tech and, um, and such things, I think that what it's possible with local education and the application of of uh, of certain technologies, that it would be possible to train our younger people in the type of technical knowledge which is required in other parts of the world, so that eventually we'll be importing our brains and not exporting bananas 
to other countries. So that, I think, is a huge benefit for small island states as um, we move forward. And then, of course, you know, less reliance on, on, on the export of primary produce means that they can use the land, the local land, uh, much better for, for, local, for local uses rather than for the needs of those thousands of miles away. Related to that land scarcity issue, you and I met while collaborating with the Sea Setting Institute on the proposal for a floating community in French Polynesia. What potential do you see for seasteading in this mix of blue technologies and blue economy development models? Of course, seasteading is uh, is a tremendous potential for uh, for small island states because of the fact that again. Uh, they're using the ocean to continue their existence. And I think that um, there's a lot of work that can be done in the seasteading space. And I look forward to seeing how it develops because then people can remain there. And uh, also, it's, it can be a source of easing uh, pressures, population pressures on, on the more, uh, on the busier and the more crowded coastal city areas in different parts of the world. So, yes, seasteading is. Um, is a very valuable option for sea level rise. So what do you see as some key technology breakthroughs that could be game changers for small island communities? Renewable energy from oceans, I think, is um, the biggest um, breakthrough for um, islands. For example, I'm a big supporter of um, ocean thermal energy conversion, OTEC or OTEC, because what it does essentially is it... um, uh, uh, it, it draws w- colder water from the depths and passes it over warmer surface waters to produce uh, steam, which drives turbines to produce electricity onshore. That, of course, is that of course is a hideously simplistic way of looking at it, but that's essentially what it does. You're basically creating renewable energy out of the ocean, and then as it goes before it goes back to the ocean, it can be pumped through mariculture. Um, farms so that the nutrients from the depths can be used for agriculture or mariculture, if you like. And then again, from there, it's piped under the earth to to produce what we call cold agriculture, where the colder water goes under um, plants and then you get what they've seen in Hawaii with this is they've got cucumbers, which are about five feet long, because the cucumbers were fooled into thinking that they're in a cooler climate, so they grow larger. And then from there on, the pipes then move into a facility whereby condensation from the water is used as a source of, of fresh water. So it has multiple uses, OTEC, and it's something which um, new gains have been made every single week almost. And I think that this eventually will be the key, not only for small island developing states, but also for coastal State. And as you know, most of the Earth's population live in coastal cities, and it could, that could help enormously reduce uh, the uh, the reliance on uh, fossil fuels. It's also, for small islands, you know, the benefits that they make from tourism is leaked out by paying for the import of very expensive and highly polluting oil and fossil fuels to drive their energy requirements. So. You know, it's it's a it's a huge huge issue, and I think that ocean thermal energy conversion and um, other uh, uh, marine sources of energy like wave energy and current energy. So you know, you're not only seeing uh, machines which harness the power of 
waves on the surface of the, of the oceans, but we're also seeing current um, uh, capture where you have machines lying on the bottom of the ocean, which doesn't disturb anything, and that converts the current uh, into current into currents, if you like. And so uh, these sort of technologies, I think, are going to benefit small island states, and, and I think it'll be it'll be financed also by uh, large coastal uh, cities, which also see the benefits of their own need to decrease reliance on fossil fuel um, use. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the water energy nexus. So, as you know, that's the idea that reliable freshwater infrastructure requires a disproportionate amount of energy expenditures and reliable energy infrastructure typically consumes a disproportionate amount of water. Is there anything particular about that freshwater side of the energy water nexus that you're seeing as promising technology or solution sets that are coming up? Here again, ocean thermal energy conversion, as we heard, can produce um, uh, water from condensation from water drawn from the depths uh, in limited quality, but also the advances in desalinization uh, are quite encouraging. And so we're seeing all types of, de- of, uh, of desalination processes, which, um, which, which takes salt and makes the salt um, edible, if you like, as well as the fresh water. So I think that um, this area is certainly worth watching and will be, uh, and it's moving very, very quickly, thank goodness. So what are some favorite key benchmarks or statistics that crystallize the climate crisis for you, perhaps related to those now inevitable impacts we will see on coastal and island communities around the world? For me, the key benchmarks uh, about climate change and the urgency of dealing with it, uh, sea level rise, of course, because we're seeing so many uh, small island states being inundated and uh, f- facing the need of uh, of migration because you cannot build seawalls to stop such uh, such rise. So this um, you know raises the whole question of migration of people and where they go and um, how to deal with it. Then the storms, of course, climate change is not causing necessarily more storms, but it's making the storms that we have much more violent. So they're causing a lot more damage. And the thing is, you know. A storm which is only, you know, which is um, not as strong as a normal hurricane, if you like, um, they'll stay around longer, which means that they're slower and slower. What they do is that then they'll suck more salt out of the ocean and pour this over the land. And of course, salt will kill most of the uh, vegetation. So that's the danger of that. So these, for, for me, sea level rise and its effect on, um, on coastal areas plus the effect on, uh, on on storms and other meteorological issues. These are key benchmarks to watch, and I think these are things that we should be addressing uh, to cope with. Absolutely. So what's next for you, Lele? What are you most excited about in your personal or professional journey? I like working with pariahs, as I say. I like working with the bad boys. You know, the good boys, everyone's looking after the good people, but I think that the bad boys if given an opportunity, can actually do some good. Um, for example, the mining industry, the extractive industries, uh, pretty tough, as is um, the oil. And then, of course, the insurance industry is huge, but no one, everyone complains about them taking their money unfairly and blah, blah, blah. So 
Um, with the International Finance Corporation, what uh, the, one of the projects which I launched was what I call um, R4R, which is uh, risk for uh, responsibility. So in essence, what we're trying to do is we're trying to, working with the uh, reinsurance industry, which people don't know very much about, but it's a multi-trillion dollar business which controls the insurance industry and therefore the premiums that we all pay. So the idea is that um, for every inch of responsibility that the extractive industries make, like the mining and um, in, in terms of the mines trying to restore the land that they've dug up, then this would be reflected in their premiums and the reinsurance industry would uh, pass this message on to the insurance industries. And then the um, again, this would be reflected in decreased premiums for the extractive industries. I'm working with the bad boys. The thing is that the extractive industries uh, in my book uh, are pretty bad because no one tells them how to be good. So this is one way of of making them better citizens and and um, more conservation minded. And I think also that um, by working with the large um, extractive industries like the oil industry, you get a lot done quicker once they see the value of being environmentally conscious. I mean, the oil companies and companies associated with them, statistics show that their, uh, their drive for, um, for, for responsibility is responsible for the vast majority of carbon um, uh, savings in the world, around the world. So, you know, whenever a large oil company makes themselves slightly more green and conscious, then huge amounts of, uh, of, um, of carbon is not pumped into the air. And another thing I've, that's uh, taken my interest is humanitarian. So I'm working with a group which is looking at repurposing the tourism industry as a humanitarian assistance asset. So that, um, for example, we're developing models so that we can repurpose the hotels and resorts in different parts of the world to be humanitarian response facilities because you know, people don't think about them. And international relief agencies spend so much of their budgets which should be going to people on looking at things which hotels can provide right on the spot and quickly and much more effectively. And then for the longer future, you know, I'm a Polynesian from Samoa. I like, we like sort of traveling as far as we can. We like to see what's across on the other side of the horizon. So I think that, um, you know, quantum, the advances in quantum are fascinating to me because this takes one way beyond the horizons that we know. So I know very little about it, but I can, what I can detect, this is going to give us a lot of, a lot of very, very interesting um, directions for we, we as a species to move. In terms of the um, tourism humanitarian, is that a particular group or organization you're working with? For humanitarian and tourism, I'm working with a group called Blue Yonder, which is um, uh, run by a fellow called Gopi Paranil in uh, Kerala, in the state of Kerala, India, where they've been and they, they they've they've started to develop a model, which um, we're going to refine and make more um, um, more adaptable to different parts of the world, starting with the Caribbean and the Pacific, the islands, of course, and then moving into coastal regions as well. When your work intersects with large petroleum or fossil fuel companies and mining companies, is there a particular 
idea or technique or tipping point that you find uh, that you've seen changes the behavior or creates a positive feedback loop that you're referring to? One of the events which um, which moved my interest in this direction was during the so-called carbon wars, when they're sort of fighting about, you know, where the carbon is or carbon isn't, you know, effective, blah, blah, blah. And then for what for me the important thing was that the reinsurance industry, I think it was Frankfurt Re, came out and said, well, we don't care what you think. We're the reinsurers. We think there is climate change and it's impacted by carbon. So this will be reflected in our, in the premiums that we charge you people. So that ended the carbon war publicly pretty quickly, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to work with the reinsurance industry. Is there anything that you're tracking or to the extent that you're keeping an eye on the United States Gulf Coast and what's going on here and what, what we can possibly learn from all of this other great work that's going on out there? In the Gulf, we've seen the the, the, the damage, the man-made damage that can be there. But I think that um, it might be useful, and you people are actually doing it, to look at um, you know the natural movement of water and of land and trying to make best possible use of that rather than, you know, putting up building walls. <laughs> you know, as you know, building walls doesn't work very well. So I think that um, maybe looking at ways of adapting as best we can to the, the changes in the coastal areas might be a useful thing to look at rather than trying to build barriers to um, the encroachment of water. Because again, as I said, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not land loss, it's ocean gain. This has been really wonder wonderful conversation. Anything else that you'd like to touch on that you think is relevant for our our blue economy, blue technology discussion, and where where you see us going globally? Again, technology. You know, we as a modern species of humanoids, I uh, think that technology is our greatest uh, defender and our greatest weapon. But I think that uh, maybe more attention should be paid on seeing it as a sidekick rather than as a leader in the things that we want to do. And that the fact is that, you know, um, the climate is not our enemy so much. It can be also um, our friend, or at least not a dangerous enemy in the longer term, if it's, if it's handled properly. And likewise, mm -hmm. the loss of land, I think that, um, you know, if you look farther inland, you'll probably find that the, well, as you know, that, um, you know, the non-sustainable practices far inland can affect the coastal areas, the erosion of coastal areas much more uh, in a much more damaging way than uh, uh, nature can with its oceans. Certainly in the, in the long run, we want to take a watershed approach to the entire Mississippi Valley. I kind of see that as our, our future phasing of the work we're doing here is to look like we should everywhere in the world to really look at the land as a series of interacting watersheds that then obviously interact with the ocean. Well, Lele, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and, of course, all the great work that you're doing. And I will hope that we can stay in touch and certainly benefit from all the things that are going on. And, and we'll hope to see you at some point here in New Orleans. I look forward to it. Yeah, do, do, do keep me on your mailing list so I can see what you guys are up to. Thank you for joining us on the Blue Economy Primer. If you enjoyed today's podcast, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Please help us spread the word. And be sure to visit our website at www.deepblue.academy, where you can find all of our available episodes, access important links and supporting information for each episode, 
Send us your comments and or suggestions for potential guests and topics. Get more information about our community engagement initiatives and join our mailing list, as well as make a much appreciated tax-deductible donation to support our nonprofit education and research mission. Thanks again to the Dan Lucas Memorial Foundation and the Pontchartrain Conservancy for their critical financial and institutional support. Until next time, when we meet again on the ever-expanding horizon of the blue economy. Thank you.